My name is Victor Kubik. Welcome to another episode of the Kubik Report. This is episode number 42. We're glad that you could join us today. Today, my guest is my own brother, Ole Kubik, and it will really truly be a Kubik Report because we'll have two brothers talking on this podcast. I'm the oldest of five siblings. The next one after me is my brother, Ole, who is just a few years younger than me. We grew up together and shared our childhood together quite closely. We did a lot of things together as young boys and teenagers, and we have kept in contact in varying degrees through our lives. So welcome to the podcast, Ole. Well, thanks for having me. This is great. Ole and I are children of refugees from the Soviet Union after World War II. Both our parents were Ukrainians. Ole was born in the U.S. I was born in Germany in a refugee camp where our parents lived for four years from 1945 to 1949. My mother was pregnant with Ole on the ship over from Germany to the United States. And we grew up learning the Ukrainian culture as well as the language. And we identify as, as Americans of Ukrainian descent. The current war in Ukraine has been very traumatic to us as we are in contact with many in Ukraine going through this horrific trauma. Some are our actual family, our cousins, nephews, nieces. Some are people we have worked with over the years in Western Ukraine in particular and north of Kiev and Chernihiv and other places as well. And there are some also who we have met online. So we want to tell some of these stories today podcast is really focusing on Ole, who has had quite a bit of contact during this last year of the war of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So Ole, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, let me just kind of formulate my thoughts here, kind of review what you said. Mom and dad were in the refugee camps from 45 to 49. After World War II, the Germans had imported so many people from the Slavic nations that after World War II, there were so many refugees and unwanted migrants that could not return back to Soviet Russia. They would have been killed. They would have been sent out to Siberia. And so the army, United States Army, came in and set up these refugee camps. And our parents were in those camps. That's where you were born. And on many Ukrainian pages on Facebook, I'm contacting many of these people. And it's surprising how much I have in common with them. Their story is so common with that of mom and dad and of yours. When we were growing up as kids, one of the things that we really enjoyed is just asking our parents. We would ask them, tell us about the war. And they would begin telling these stories. And we were just enthralled. As I was growing up as a kid, I never, ever, ever thought this would happen again to Ukraine. Well, in 1949, mom and dad finally had a sponsor from Minnesota, Alex Gronowski, who was a teacher at the University of Minnesota Agricultural Department. He sponsored mom and dad. He was originally from Ukraine. And before World War I, before the three great empires would clash, the Russian, European, and the Ottoman Empire would crash and collapse, I think he got out of there because he sensed that there would be horrific civil wars in World War I and World War II. Well, mom and dad came across the, I believe, the General Weir, which was a troop carrier, and they came into New York Harbor in 1949, July of 1949. My mom, at that time, was in her first trimester pregnancy, and she was extremely sick as she came across the boat for 10 days. For one thing, she was pregnant, and in those days, they had no gyros to, gyroscopes to level and stabilize the boat. So she was extremely ill. When mom and dad had arrived in New York City, dad had no problems moving around and eating and talking to people. He was a very friendly person. He met every person on that boat, I think. And he got off the boat and he couldn't carry mom or because I said she was pregnant with me. She had lost a lot of weight on that 10 day journey. And a whole group of Pentecostal women that were offering donuts and sandwiches and coffee as refugees would get off the boat, 
that they ran past the guards and carried our mom off the boat. At that time, she then was at Ellis Island and in and hospitalized, I think, for about four or five days before they could continue their journey to Minnesota. But that was their entryway into America. You have to understand that they were shell-shocked. They were extremely homesick. And one person that I've been having dealing with across Facebook this girl's name is Vika. She was, um, I worked with her in an orphanage. She was a young girl and a teenager. Today she has a family. She has fled Ukraine with her husband and her little daughter. And she is extremely homesick. She's 22 years old. And it just reminds me so much of what my mom, our mom went through when she was in her early 20s, just extreme homesickness and shock. And that was their entryway into America. And I can relate to some of these people that are struggling. I've been dealing with an Olya from Odessa who just lost her husband. She's 39 years old. She's lost her husband and she's dealing with extreme depression and just the shock of cruise missiles flying overhead, sirens every day, the electricity being knocked out, and it is just a rough thing these Ukrainians are going through. I don't think the press has been able to cover this, just the human. They talk about the military advances and losses and politics of it all, but there right now is just a massive amount of suffering that's going on there that was very, very similar, in fact, worse than World War II. What they're saying is that the Russians, by destroying hospitals and museums and cities and leveling cities as they go is worse than what the Nazis did in 42, 43 throughout Ukraine. So this is just mm -hmm. a very traumatic, difficult time for Ukraine. I, I'm very close to it. I have to be careful sometimes just to get away from it because it is just so extremely depressing. I might just add here that Oli has gone and worked in Ukraine on about three or four different summers. Four or five working. summers, yes. You, you had asked me to go, and that was a real life-changing point in my life, to be able to go back and to uh, deal with these Ukrainians on a ground level. I know, and you get acquainted with them, and they grow on you. <laughs> I mean, they, they become like like your family. They're not just pictures on TV or in, in a newspaper. They are real people, and they're very much like us. And and they have the same desires and wants and hopes and dreams. And then here they have to go through this. And I just really know that it seems like almost there's been a purpose for our having gone over and worked with people to really get to know them, to in some way be able to help them. For example, you with Vika and with us and her sister, you know, Edita is, is her name, who was one of the street kids, as we call it. We had a street children's program in a western Ukrainian city of Vinohradiv. And uh, I might just tell our audience here that Oli went over to help teach English as a second language. Not only did I have a chance to go over, but it, I went over there with Eugene one summer, and uh, Eugene does not know the language. He is the youngest of the whole family of five kids. And I thought Eugene would really struggle over there because he didn't know the language. But somehow there, is, there was an immediate establishment of a bond between himself and the Ukrainian orphan kids. They loved him, he loved them, and it was just an amazing thing to behold. In fact, his son Colin went over there and he also developed an immediate bond with those orphan kids. In fact, all three of Eugene's kids, Lauren, Heather and Colin did exceptionally well there, and I don't know what it was. It was just more than just meeting orphans. It was meeting orphans of a common bond, and it was just something to behold. It was in the Zakarpatia area. Zakarpatia means beyond the Carpathians. It is in the Hungarian Valley, which has been, which was traditionally part of the Hungarian Empire. There are many Hungarians live there. And it is still in the minds of many Hungarians a disputed area. 
the Hungarians feel is there. So it was just a very, very interesting experience going into that area in Zakarpatia. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about that area, it is just extremely beautiful. And that area has been contested by the Slovaks, by the Hungarians and the Romanians. And the it's a real zipper border. It goes back and forth. In fact, politically, what's been happening as a result of this war in Ukraine is Hungary is already making noises saying that they would like to reclaim that Zakarpatia area. In fact, Vika, the girl that I was telling you about, the lady that I was telling you about, she is half Hungarian. She married a Ukrainian. And, you know, it just, it's, I, I do want to say one thing. I do not sense animosity between people, whether they be Hungarians and Ukrainians or Slovaks and Ukrainians or Poles and Ukrainians or Russians and Ukrainians. They intermarry. They live in the same villages and towns. But as soon as politics gets involved, as soon as the governments get involved, they have a tendency to polarize and people then become pitted against one another. And whether it's in Europe or even in America, we see this, that people get along just fine until politics get involved and then people get instantly polarized. Our mother was Russian. She was a Russian living in Kharkiv. If you want to say it Russian, it's Kharkov in Ukraine. And she was, because she was from Ukraine, she ended up in the same Ukrainian labor camps that dad did. In fact, that's where they had met and after the war, they were married. But dad was Ukrainian. My, our mom was Russian. And to avoid any conflict after World War II, she just completely never told anybody that she was Russian. Because they would have been, things were so polarized after World War II that people turned on each other. And uh, our mom just never even admitted that she was Russian to avoid any polarization or pulling apart of one another. But I never knew that our mother was Russian. And when I went after her death, we got, we, I notified the family back there by letter that uh, our mother had died. And all these relatives started writing these letters to, to me in Russian. I could understand Ukrainian very, very well. Uh, but Russian was so-so. And so I had a hard time reading these letters. I had to go to a friend's home who read the letters to me. When I went over also to our relatives in a family reunion in 1988, and all my mother's family got together, and, and some of my um, nephews, my cousins came from Siberia, even when, where they were living, and we all got together. I don't think that in the couple of days' time that we had the reunion, there was a single word of Ukrainian spoken. They all spoke Russian. Here, I mean, I, I understand Russian better now as, as, as I, I took some courses and kind of beefed up my uh, ability to speak it. But it, they didn't speak a single word of Ukrainian. And I thought they could try a little bit more, but they didn't. And my mother definitely was of Ukrainian, uh, of, of Russian stock. And so I have to be careful because in my own mind, I can easily get polarized to be against Russians. I like to say that we were taught as kids not to look at people as groups, to look at people as individuals when it comes to judging character. And I just think that lesson was so deeply ingrained in us. And I find that in today, as far as looking at various groups of people, it is so important to be able to look a person in the eye and just judge them for who they are as an individual not as a group. And this is something that bothers me when I see this taking place in America. Evaluate people by group, by sex, of color. That is extremely dangerous and extremely divisive for our society. I know. I feel like, you know, both of us have been, in, you know, in ministry, you know, over the years. And, and simply, you know, you are taught and your work is to work with people as individuals uh, where every life matters and every life is important. Not only in groups of nationalities, but also groups, groups economically and in the other gatherings. But this world has become so polarized, the world, and also we in America have gone through more polarization than ever in our history. Oli, can you give me an impression of the way you feel about the people based upon history? I believe the Germans invaded Ukraine, or it was at that time the Soviet Union, in 41, 42. 
Mom and dad at that time were teenagers. Dad in the western part of Ukraine in the Volyn area. Actually, it was a Ternopil area boundary there. Mom was from Kharkiv. Well, Hitler needed young labor, either single adults or teenagers, to come to Germany to work. So he shut down all the high schools saying the Ukrainians, which were the subhumans, that was the ter German term, Untermensch. Mm -hmm. And requiring all teenagers, or at least one person from each household, to go to Germany to work. These teenagers were without work. They were doing nothing. They were very, very eager to go to Germany to work for three months, get, a, get some pay, and come back. Well, that was a lie. But because they were willing to go to Germany, they were considered to be collaborators with the Nazis. And you will hear many times in Russia today speak of Ukrainians as Nazis, Nazis, Nazis. You hear that over and over again. Well, you have to understand the state of mind that the Ukrainians were in in 41, 42. Ten years before, now the older I get, ten-year time period is smaller and smaller. In 1932, Stalin had starved out up to six million Ukrainians in the winter of 32-33. For one thing, he, had, he wanted to kill and destroy Ukrainian nationalism, and he wanted to just do it by changing the demographics of Ukraine, and he also needed the grain as a barter to be used to purchase industrial equipment for Ukraine. So he confiscated all the grain from Ukraine. Now, if you want to know how much grain that is, recently, because of this war, they have been showing the ships that are being loaded up with grain. Grain is an un Ukraine is an unbelievable grain basket for feeding all of Europe and Africa. It is a very hardy, dur uh, durable grain that doesn't rot in the bins. It's, it's extremely good. And it has been the wealth of Ukraine for over a thousand years. Well, Stalin confiscated that grain and up to six million Ukrainians starved to death. When the Nazis came in 41, 42, they, the Ukrainians were totally unaware of their evil motives. So many Ukrainians at that time sided with the Nazis, not knowing, not fully realizing who they were siding with. Many of them, like our mom and dad, as teenagers, went to Germany to work. I have a photograph on my bulletin board of my mom as a 16-year-old girl in those camps. It is just a very precious picture. And the expression on her face is just deep, deep sadness and homesickness. And uh, that, was their, that was their teenage years. And I think that uh, I have just watched some videos of what took place in the Jewish camps and in the Slavic camps, how these teenagers felt robbed out of four years of their lives, and that after World War II, they wanted to catch up on that loss. One thing about Dad is that when he was in Europe in those camps, they set up printing presses they, uh, in those camps after World War II, where all of a sudden they had their freedom again. They were again able to be creative. They set up classes, art classes. They set up music classes. They set up language classes. They wanted to recapture those four years that they had been robbed from them. And they began studying English. They began studying Mozart. They began learning music. They gave themselves an education, just a remarkable education of their own after those four years that was taken from them. So dad, by the time he arrives to see the Statue of Liberty in 1949, July of 1949, he is, he knows English. He is very well educated. He's struggling with his English. Mom struggled even more. But it was a remarkable thing about the immigrants that came over in, you know, after World War II, how much they were, they were they used their own initiative to give themselves an education and to study. You know, Dad, for being a farm boy that grew up in Western Ukraine, sure loved books. I mean, he was a big time reader. 
I remember that uh, he read all of Winston Churchill's five-volume series about European history and about his own life. But Dad was a remarkable reader and painter and potter and woodcarver and cabinet maker. He was an extreme, you know, I, I sometimes wonder if, if it was IQ that he had or just the ability to concentrate or also the fact that he wanted to catch up on a certain part of life that was stolen from him. Well, he sure did. And he had five children on top of that. And he had a good marriage. And he was... On a carpenter's salary, he supported five kids, did his job during the day, and at night he would come home and do his artwork and reading. There is one man in Zakarpacha. His name is Vanya Lach. I, I just admire him so much. He is the same way. He loves music. He loves Christian music. He likes writing it. He likes playing it. I think he has five kids. And he travels all over Europe doing car construction work, living in garbage housing so he can send it back home to raise his family. But he loves his music. And the music he produces is just amazing. And I say to myself, he reminds me of Dad in that he lives two lives. One, he supports a family, and the other, he does what he really loves. And I say, that is a rare person. Usually people get bogged down in their jobs, or they become artists and musicians and are incapable or unwilling to support their mm. families because they so love their hobby of music or art or whatever. Mm. Well, as we look at what what is happening here of two countries of people who have you know similarities... Why did Russia invade Ukraine? Uh, this is not something that just kind of all of a sudden happened and uh, just a reaction to a Soviet Union breaking apart. Uh, there's just a lot more to the background going back to the czars and even beforehand and uh, even to what Ukraine is. Ukraine, which is originally called Rus of all things, and you can comment about that. The city of Kiev was a major European city in about 1000 AD. It uh, converted as a nation to Christianity in 988. The, the uh, Kiev princes, they were called, like Prince Vladimir, the, the rulers, they had many connections with Europe. In fact, that intermarriage between the French royalty and Ukrainian, you know, royalty. And at that time, the people who are invading Ukraine were living up there north in a little town called Moscow. I know that you have some very interesting observations about this. Okay, here we go. This is uh, this is three hours of answer here. But let me let me go way back. In the book of Acts, you find people showing up in Jerusalem for that first Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit was given. And you'll find people from Pontius, from the areas around the Black Sea. These were Jews as a result of the wars in Judea scattered throughout all of Europe and the area around the Black Sea. The area of the Black Sea was something that the Greeks explored. They set up their colonies along the area of Crimea. The city that just recently been destroyed, Crimea or Mariupol and Kherson, were originally Greek cities. These people came, uh, the Jews of that area, and they're finding uh, through archaeology that there were many synagogues in that area around the time of the life of Jesus Christ. Well, these people showed up for Pentecost, and they returned to these areas to bring Christianity to these areas. It is a tradition, there's no proof of it, but that the Apostle Andrew went up the Dnipro River to the cities where there's going to be Kiev, the city of Kiev, and said that there would be a Christian city in that area in the future. There was Christianity throughout Ukraine from that point on till 988. The reason I say 988 is because that is when Prince or Knaz Volodymyr, he it was a in a sense a forceful baptism. It was a done for maybe political reasons, just the way that Constantine maybe did it in Constantinople. But he brought Christ, he made Christianity kind of the official religion. Now it's interesting to note is that that the Eastern Orthodox 
and the Catholic Church were one church until what was it, 10, 1054? Yeah, the Great Schism that took place between the East and the West. And there were a lot of factors in that. One could be just as simple as far as the Latin alphabet as opposed to the Greek alphabet. But there were there was a, a schism there. In 988, there was the baptism of the entire city. At that time, there were huge cathedrals, Orthodox Christian cathedrals in the city of Kiev. Moscow was still a swamp. Moscow does not show up on the uh, maps until the 1200s. In fact, it was never called Rus or Russia until the time of Peter the Great in the late 1600s or the 1700s. That was the area of the Muscovy uh, or the Muscovites. That was their own group of people that somehow survived the hordes of the Mongols and of Genghis Khan and of the Golden Hordes. And there was a difference that was established between the people that later on became Muscovites or as the Russians took the name of Rus to themselves from Ukraine. And there was a division that took place. And people say, what is the cause of this war? And I say, this war did not start on February 24th, 1922, or 2022. It did not start six to eight years before with the theft of Crimea and of the Donbass area. This has been an ongoing struggle for the last eight, nine hundred years. Now, I would like to say, you know, what I understand from Scripture is what is the cause of wars? And that is the natural coveting that takes place when people want somebody else's property. Through politics, we can argue, is this NATO? Is this, uh, you know, what is the cause of this war? And for me, it is something very simple. Ukraine is an extremely wealthy area, and yet it is one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth. It is, you have what is known as the Chornozem, or the black, black dirt, black earth area. That is unbelievable that produces grain in feeding the rest of the world. In fact, some of this grain, genetically, many of the immigrants that came to America in Canada and the Dakotas and in Kansas genetically have brought over the grain from Ukraine and is grown in Central or Western America. And, and Ukraine raises now 10 or, you know, this past year only had about 50 to 60 percent of its harvest because of the war. But Ukraine has the capacity to grow 15 times more food than it consumes. And it basically feeds yes. the Middle East, provides 80% of uh, Egypt's cooking oil. I mean, it's not only grain, but it's sunflower oil. I mean, sunflower oil, and, right. And it also has minerals, uranium, uh, all, all kinds of things. And like I said, people lustfully look at that wealth and want it. And answering the question in the book of James in chapter 4, where do wars come from? You it's, you lust and have not. You want stuff. And that's that's where wars come from. And the Ukrainian war is a very, very direct result. Unfortunately, if the Russians were to take it like anything else, it would be oligarchs that would take it over and buy more yachts <laughs> with it. <laughs> well, you know, what happened is a lot of this stuff was nationalized during the times of the Soviet era. And when the Soviet era fell apart, you had people that were communist people in high authorities that took these resources to themselves and started looking at all these resources as their personal wealth. That is why in Russia and in Ukraine, you have these unbelievable oligarchs. When we were in Zakarpatia, this one lady said, see that hill over there? She says, that used to be a copper mine. She said, F, and it provided a lot of jobs for the people in Zakarpatia. She said that when the Soviet Union fell apart, the owner of or the political head of that copper mine went and sold all the trolleys, all the cables, all the motors, all the digging equipment, sold it to somebody in Germany, pocketed the money, the mine shot, shut down, and they don't know where that money went. Well, this went throughout all of Ukraine. This is one of the reasons why the country is so poor. In fact, Ukrainians are beginning saying, hey, you see all this grain, you see all this coal, you see all this gas, 
where is the money going? It is going to a group of people that, just an elite group of people, which of course leads to unbelievable corruption. It is sad to say, but Ukraine is a very corrupt country. But through the help of the United States, is uh, they have been doing an excellent job of purging some of this corruption that takes place. Now, you know, this issue of natural covetousness, of wanting somebody else's property, just before the invasion of Donbass, and people say it was a civil war, it was not a civil war. You had Russians affecting the Russian-speaking peoples in the Donbass area. They found gas. I mean, in the areas where you have coal and steel, you would always find that there's gas. Well, through modern technology, that there is found a huge basin of gas, natural gas, in eastern Ukraine. You have vast amount of coal. Now, in order to dig coal in the tunnels they do, they need timbers, and they get those timbers from cutting down pine trees in the Carpathians. Well, there's harvesting of wood that takes place in the Carpathians, and people do not know who's doing it, where the money is going, who, you know, how it is being handled, but there are whole mountains being stripped of pine timbers that are being used to prop up these coal mines. Well, they found gas in eastern Ukraine, and just recently, uh, the Russians were able to take the city of Solidar, which means a salt as a gift, Sol being salt and Dar being a gift, Darunok, that underneath the city of Solidar, there are hundreds of miles of tunnels where they have taken salt. Now, they have been mining salt there since the time of Ivan the Terrible. In a society such as Ukraine and Russia, there is a lot of food preservation that takes place using salt. It is, you know, the lactoacid fermentation. So they needed salt to can and preserve pickles, kapusta, beets, everything, you know, Ukrainians are known for their food preservation, their ability to uh, store food and survive throughout the whole winter, uh, just feeding, being able to feed themselves and their families through preservation. Where salt is a very valuable, valuable form of currency. It has been known to feed, uh, to use as a wage for soldiers. It was used as trade and as barter with other countries. With the town of Solodar, has recently been taken by the Russians, and not by the Russians themselves, by a mercenary group called the Wagner Group. Uh, this guy that heads up the Wagner Group, he wants those salt mines for himself because he is one of the oligarchs of the, Rus of the Russian society. Now, once they take in Solidar, they move on over to Bakhmut. But the whole point of it is, what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that you know, we want to say, okay, NATO pushed too hard, or NATO kept pushing their boundaries east. I just feel that is maybe a factor, but is an overexpanded factor. The whole issue is you have one country that wants the grain, the salt, the coal, the gas of another country. And Russia has always, since the 1500s, expanded. They have this attitude towards themselves is called the Russian Mir, the Russian peace, or the Russian world, which means one and the same thing. They expanded into Siberia. They took to themselves Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. They wanted parts of Poland, and they know they cannot be in an empire, which they have openly said that's exactly what they want to do, is they want to restore the Soviet boundaries uh, under Russian rule, under Russian peace, and it is what we would describe as, in America, we called it the manifest destiny. Well, the Russian mirror is manifest destiny on steroids. You know, they just have got this default way of thinking that they would very much like to see the Russian empire of the Tsars and of the Soviet Union restored, and they cannot do it without the wealth of Ukraine. And they, they've just seen this as that Russia, in, in spite of the fact of the oil, massive amount of oil that they have, they are still not able to build the military that they want. They're, they're going broke, trying to make it on 
uh, gas alone. They cannot, they just do not have the resources or the manufacturing base to build a strong economy that can support an empire. They need Ukraine simply as a resource for finance. I feel like if they had Ukraine, they still would be what they always were. They are not competent. They don't live by rules, the Judeo-Christian ethic. They Lying and stealing are something which is just part of life. It's not even looked upon as being wrong. And I feel like after 70 years of communism, which is almost to the day, 70 years, it just collapsed under its own weight. It was just such a rotten system. And now they are trying to build it back up again. They build it up. uh, It was under communism and under under the czars. Now it'll be under something else, but it's the same mentality. And it's a very dangerous one. It's interesting you say this. Um, Russia, uh, they, uh, beginning with Peter the Great, they kind of held hands, the Tsars and the Russian Orthodox Church. In fact, Peter the Great brought the Russian Church under his authority, under secular authority, and he also took over the Ukrainian Church, which is something I want to get back to later on. But you had this thing called Holy Russia, and after the Turks took over Constantinople and made it Istanbul, Moscow began considering themselves the third Rome. You had Rome that collapsed, you had Constantinople that collapsed, and they they kind of took over. It was the Tsars and the Russian Orthodox Church that worked hand in hand. In fact, that's been cause of a, a real serious drift here. Now, Peter the Great in wanting to bring Ukraine into the Russian fold, began destroying all Ukrainian literature of the church beginning in the late 1600s, early 1700s. And all church services were in, at one time in Ukrainian up to that point, and they began to be Russian. This Christmas, January 7th in Ukraine, is the first time in over 300 years that church services were in Ukrainian at the Pachevska Lavra, which is the huge cathedral complex in Ukraine. So that was a big, big thing for the Ukrainians. But I want to say that where Christianity did have an effect on people, a lot of that was destroyed in during the Soviet era. And whatever progress Christianity made, it was destroyed when you begin destroying the whole concept of God, shutting down churches. This last Christmas, only 2% of all Russians went to church. And this could open up a whole new topic, but this is one of the reasons many of the Protestant congregations and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons make such a big impact on Ukraine and Russia is because Christianity was outlawed. People did not learn about the Bible, about Jesus. And so there is a vacuum there that is being filled by many Protestant churches entering in that area. And this has caused tremendous resentment from the Orthodox churches. But there is also very much a religious element that is taking place here. In fact, in these last two, three years, the Ukrainian church has broken off the Moscow church. And so you have a Ukrainian, I should say Orthodox Ukrainian church that is being that is being formed and just a huge amount of people are, are shifting over from the Moscow church in Ukraine to the Ukrainian church in Ukraine. And with that it goes a huge income for the church, for the Moscow church that would used to come from Ukraine. So there are just tensions even of a religious nature, which is sad to say is that, you know, religious religion has played a part in wars and you're seeing it take place here again. I know that uh, if I could just comment too, uh, I'd like to have your your uh, your input on this. The relationship, you know, obviously with Putin and the Moscow Church, you know, he she's shown there with a the leader of the church there in all his attire and everything, and the uh, what do they call? It? I'm not sure the bishop or metropolitan, whatever of the of the church. He's the patron. Yeah, he's uh, blessing the war and all that kind of thing. But now in Ukraine, right now, there seems to be a, a rift between Zelensky and the leader of the Ukrainian church. Do you have any comment on that? People have been asking me about that. Okay, here's a problem. 
and I fully do not understand Ukrainian politics, but there was quite a group of people that were pat patriots in Ukraine under uh, Petro Poroshenko. He was the, the founder of the Russian candy. He's a multi-billionaire. Then Zelensky comes along, and he is this entertainer, clown, and he be begins to be voted in. And so there is a rift in Ukraine right now, as far as many people not trusting Zelensky. Uh, there's people who like to see Poroshenko back. And I I'm sorry to say, but I I'll, I'll say this as a prediction, and I don't know if it's going to come true or not. Ukrainians have traditionally not been able to be unified during times of crisis, whether it be East Bank, West Bank, whether it be the Polish side or the Russian side, or it be the Catholics versus the, uh, the Orthodox, whether it be the Russians versus uh, the Moscow division or the Kiev tradition. They, during times of crisis, have pitted themselves against one another. Mazepa, who is uh, one of the Cossack hetmans, rebelled against Peter the Great, and he was only able to get two or three of his army divisions to follow him, where the other six or seven went with Moscow. So, like I say, I don't know or understand much of Ukrainian politics, but I know, and I can already see it percolating, is that traditionally they will pull against each other. And it's just because one thing is Ukrainian, if you take a look at it where it's located, it has always been located in the center between Ottoman, European, Austro-Hungarian, Polish. The Far and, Eastern, the Far um, Eastern, Genghis Khan and the, the hordes of the East. Oh, absolutely. The the people that were Khazar, uh, consider the Khazars, the Khazars were from the East. You know, interesting to note, the Khazars in the 700s as a nation turned to Judaism. The entire nation of Khazars in the 700s were Sabbath keepers. They've turned to Judaism. It's an amazing history. Well, you know, I've, I've been to Uzbekistan, you know, which borders China. And uh, I was amazed that we were taken to a synagogue, of all things, of people that have been there for a long, long time. And th these are yes. people that said that they were people from the captivity of Nebuchadnezzar that never went back. You know, the, 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 the Jews, the diaspora, continued to move out. And here, exactly. here were uh, gravestones with the Hebrew writings on it. Now, the Russians had shut all that down, but nonetheless, those people had gone there. We saw a cemetery, and it's amazing how these people have had influence, you know, in those areas. But uh, that, that's quite an amazing history. Well, you know, when... Was it Vladimir Veliki, uh, Vladimir the Great, wanted to convert the nation to a one standard religion? He considered Muslim, and he didn't like that because they didn't drink wine. He wanted to go to Judaism. That was too rigid for him. And he didn't go with the Catholic faith. He went with the Orthodox faith. And I think it was just the beauty of the services and of the liturgy and the candles and the incense that drew him to it. Volodymyr uh, Veliky at one time actually considered a converting to Judaism, the entire country, in 988. That's not to say that Christianity didn't live there from the time of the apostles to the time of Cyril and Methodius. That were two Greek missionaries that came up to the area and brought the Cyrillic alphabet. But I'd like to say one thing that was just kind of fun for me is the area of Kiev, there were many, many people that came into that area. In fact, there were Vikings that came through the rivers of the areas that we call Russia today. They portaged their boats over from one river to the next to get over to the city, to the river of Dnieper, and then would bring the boats down the Dnipro River down to Kiev. And I stood on the banks of the, of the Dnipro River in Kiev, and I looked north on that river, and I squinted my eyes, and I just imagined these huge Viking boats coming down. And actually, they they weren't that huge in the river system, but they were these boats that would come down the rivers, and I squinted my eyes and just imagined these Viking boats with the dragon heads 
coming down the Dnipro River. To me, it was just such a thrill. I know. National Geographic had an article several years back. It's called The Vikings Who Went East. You know, not the Vikings who went to, to the right. New World, but the same Vikings also went east and developed very, very profitable trade routes uh, in, in there. In fact, the original Rus may very well have been, I, I'm not a historian to that depth, but were people of Scandinavian stock, you know, the Vikings. Yes. Some of them went down the Volga River. They went into the Caspian, some went down the Caspian Sea. Some went down far south as uh, Iraq, where present-day Iraq and Babylon is located. They were amazing travelers. They they attacked the city of Constantinople. Uh, they were just Vikings. Uh, maybe that's why they can never win a Super Bowl. <laughs> I know. I almost hoped that the Vikings wouldn't make it to the Super Bowl. I can't take a fifth loss. <laughs> make the worst, and they never let us down. <laughs> but I do know that uh, in studying Ukrainian history when we were very young, there were these before Prince Vladimir. There was Prince Oli. You know your your name, your namesake. Yes. And before that, it was Prince Igor. Igor, which is our dad's name, and you know he attacked Constantinople. And I believe. I believe he was the husband or in some way related to Olga that the Orthodox Church places her on the level of apostle. And she there is a huge statue to her, dedicated to her, in to the American church in America, in Boundbrook, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. There is a she is considered to be one of the greats of Eastern history as to what she did as far as bringing education and civilization to that part of the world. No, the people the people were uh, very well educated, a very advanced society. And there's another advanced society that uh, I think is coming to the fore, which a lot of people realize are the Scythians who populated the, southern, the northern shores of the Black Sea. And the mounds of uh, those people that really show a very advanced society uh, not only in wealth, but also in in, uh, in in other ways. And the Scythians are mentioned biblically, you know, as some of those that uh, appeared in the Book of Acts, you know, in in uh, in right. uh, uh, Jerusalem for the first Pentecost. So it's it's quite an interesting history, and the war kind of brings a lot of these things t- uh, to fore. Yeah, I, I do want to add one thing. You mentioned Scythians mm-hmm. that there is a systematic destruction of Ukrainian culture. The, the Scythian gold that has been found in these mountains or in these mounds that has been in Ukrainian museums, well, with this invasion, the Scythian gold has been stolen. There are a lot of artifacts out of Crimea, from synagogues, from Greeks, that the Russians have flat out either destroyed, ends up on eBay somewhere, or ends up in the Hermitage. There are many graveyards of old Cossacks and old Cossack names that are Ukrainian that when they come into the area of Kherson or Mariupol or any of the eastern Ukrainian Cossack towns, those gravestones are pulled up and destroyed. They are destroyed. They want to, and what they have done is they will do what they have always done, is that they make the Ukrainian language illegal. Mm -hmm. And it's part of destruction. And what they can't do, they drive people out of the country. Right now, there's, what, two, three, four million Ukrainians that are been driven out of the country and that will never return. Mm-hmm. And these areas will be replaced by Russians and Russian-speaking people, which is just really quite a – it doesn't take – you know, it takes maybe several hundred years, but you can change the – uh, demography of a country, it, it, which is an effort of what they're trying to do. I don't think they're even denying it at all. No, no, it's just uh, terrible. I mean, Stalin was very open. He hated Ukrainians. And he said the, prob- the problem with Ukraine was is there are too many of them to kill them all. I mean, he, he made these horrific statements. And then to starve uh, a nation, you know, kill six million people through famine that our mother lived through. She was eight years old. Uh, you know, many, many Ukrainian-speaking people are out in Siberia. Because beginning with the time of Peter the Great, they would just ship out massive amounts of Ukrainians on wa- by wagons or by trains and drive them to Siberia. So you have many areas in Siberia that are Ukrainian-speaking people. Mm-hmm. Well, Ole, 
I, I just want to say how much I appreciate this conversation. It brings back memories of many conversations that we used to have. And I'm glad that we can kind of reunite here on a podcast and share some of the thoughts that we had about Ukraine's history, uh, the, the Ukrainian heritage, and uh, make it something which would be very, very interesting in the contemporary times and in the crisis that's going on over there. Yeah, this is enjoyable. I enjoy this. This is this is my cup of tea to be able to, or maybe a cup of borscht that I enjoy this to be able to discuss this history and to what's going on there. And uh, being a, uh, there's a few people that I know over there that I just really enjoy helping. And I want to say something when I help these people by collections of people from people that I make is that the tone of gratitude and appreciation is that of a rescue puppy. I And I don't mean to diminish their emotions or their feelings, but they are so grateful. And whenever you give something to these people, they say, this is tremendous hanba for them, or mm-hmm. shame, they say, because they are not used to taking something that they have not worked for. But they are so broken. And that one time they had farms, they had gardens, they had their little villages and towns, and all of a sudden, they're living in Slovakia, where nobody really wants them. People are helping out, but they really do not like the status of being a refugee. And I just really can relate to that as to the attitude that mom had, mom and dad had when they came to this country. Holy, thank you. Right. Thank you very much for taking this time to be able to talk. You bet. Okay, so thank you very much. Talk, talk to you again. We thank you, our listeners, for joining us here today for The Cubic Report. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please share it and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Podbean, which includes information about this podcast, Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Pocketcaster, and other podcasting platforms. You can easily find us on any browser address bar by simply typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your impressions and suggestions. So write to us at thecubic at gmail.com, V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.